As we come now to God's holy word, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. It's no surprise now by this point. Uh, Luke uh, will carry on uh, where we've been uh, toward the end now of Luke chapter 1. We'll finish out Luke, Luke 1 here. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, that the glory of the Lord may be revealed. Lord, help us to hear that wilderness voice, that we would see the glory of the Lord. Would you show us your glory now, just a glimpse and tune our hearts to sing your praise. Spirit, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to believe? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Luke in chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 57, and we'll read a good number of verses to the end of the chapter. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of God. Now, this Advent season, we've been leaning into the theme of expecting. Expecting, that's the broader theme. We know in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, he begins with two expecting mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. Elizabeth, uh, the mother of John the Baptist, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And during their pregnancies, we've been looking at what these women are expecting, not just child children, but they're expecting that their reproach would be taken away and that blessing would be given. We'll now turn to a new expectation, which I'll mention in a moment, but let me set the scene for it. By this point in the narrative, Elizabeth has spent nine months expecting, and now that child is born. And and just like when any child is born, I'm sure the baby got lots of comments from everyone around who visited. Oh, oh, he's so cute, which we all lie. Newborns are not cute, but we say that they are. Oh, he's so cute. Uh, He's got his dad's chin. Uh, He's so precious. He's so big. He's so small. Whatever comments about all these sorts of things. And so there are are lots of normal things now around the birth of this new baby. The neighbors and friends come to visit. There's lots of celebrating and rejoicing. And on the eighth day after he's born, there's the the typical ceremony of circumcision, according to Jewish custom. But then something abnormal happens. Elizabeth wants the child to be named John. That in itself is not abnormal. It's a good name. It's a common name. There's lots of Johns throughout the scripture. It's not something she picked out of a baby book. She was told, her husband was told by the angel Gabriel that that's what they're to name this child, John. Uh, But all the neighbors have opinions about this name. What else is new? Everybody wants to throw their two cents into this. They say, well, this kid ought to be named Zachariah after his dad. So they turn to Zachariah, the dad, and they ask him, hey, what do you think? Now, during the entire nine-month pregnancy, Zachariah has been unable to speak, maybe even unable to hear, in addition. This isn't just because he doesn't want to. He's unable to speak as a punishment from the angel Gabriel because Zechariah did not believe the word of God that was given to him. And so as the neighbors are now making signs to Zechariah, asking him about the name of the boy, Zechariah now affirms with his, what his wife has said. He gets a tablet and he writes out his name is John. And as he does this, suddenly, Zechariah can speak again. It's as if a muzzle has been taken off his mouth. Now, as you can imagine, that might have been startling for the people around, maybe uh, exciting, scary a bit. Luke tells us that all the people were struck with, with fear, Uh, And word quickly spreads fast that God 
has done something amazing, something supernatural here. The buzz around it all centers on one big question where they ask, what will this child be? The buzz isn't about Zachariah, it's about the child. In other words, what can we expect from this child, John? And now that Zechariah can speak and he's filled with the, with the Spirit, he then tells us the answer. He says, this child will be a prophet of God. And he, he, he spills out this big, long soliloquy. If you were reading in your Bible, you can clearly see this section set apart in your Bible. We call it the, the Benedictus in the Old Latin. I just like the sound of that word, this Benedictus. Zechariah recounts the work of God and the prophets of old. So he goes on and on and on about this, and then he ends this with closing words about this new prophet, his own son, John, who has just been born. And there he tells us that John was sent to prepare, to prepare the way of the Lord in the hearts of the people. It's in verse 76. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So our focus of expectation today is preparation. What does that mean? What does that look like? This is especially significant for us to talk about preparation given our own cultural context, because for us, Usually, a lack of preparation is a selling point. Lack of preparation is often an asset, right? If you have no idea what you're going to serve for dinner tonight, you know what you could do? You could go to your freezer and pull out a meal and stick it in the microwave. Isn't that amazing? No stress, no mess, no prep. We don't really have to prep at all. We don't have to preheat the oven. We don't have to stoke the stove. We don't even sometimes have to set the table. You can sometimes eat directly out of the bowl. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. I do that sometimes myself. This does not mean preparations for us have all gone away. It just means modern conveniences have changed the ways that we sometimes prepare. Preparation is often not considered a necessity. Preparation is not often for us a necessity, but it is an investment in the things that we care about. So you can have a meal out of your freezer if you want. It's a good thing. But if you want a really nice meal, you know, a, you know, a big Thanksgiving-style meal or even just a regular meal, maybe you want to take the time to invest in preparing the food, buying the groceries for it, uh, you know, getting the recipe out and actually cooking it all. Or if you, if you want to go on a date, if you can get a date, sometimes it's hard to do that, but if you want to go on a date, maybe you prepare by fixing your hair. Or, or by planning some particular outing or by, you know, putting on something that makes you smell good. If you want to, to plan a vacation, maybe you book tickets, maybe you pack your suitcase and, and double check to make sure there's actually underwear in there. If you want to prepare for, for a job interview, maybe you dress smartly, maybe you update your resume, maybe you practice responses, whatever we do, preparation is often linked 
to how much we value a thing. Preparation is often linked to how much we value a thing, which means that if we're to have encounters with God, that certainly calls for preparation. In the Old Testament, when Moses is about to receive the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, everybody knows the Ten Commandments, in that event, the Lord descends to the mountain in a cloud of fire and smoke in the sight of all the people who were down around the mountain. But Moses told the people before this event occurred that they needed to be prepared They set a boundary around the mountain so that no one would touch it or else they would die. They were also told that before this occurs, they need to wash their garments and that they had to refrain from sexual relation with their spouses for three days leading up to that event. Now, those are specific, very tangible ways that they were to be gearing their minds toward the Lord before he comes. Now, for us, there's no command in the Bible that that all encounters with the Lord have to be prepared in that same way whenever we gather for worship. I suppose that's good news. Uh, You know, if you're wearing the same pants today that you wore yesterday or even last week and you didn't wash them, that's totally fine. You didn't break any laws in the Bible. But we do, we do need to consider how we might prepare for worship in some way. Because some people think that worship is like a microwave. No stress, no mess, no prep. Just tap the button and wait for the ding. You know, if that's the approach we take, if we keep doing that, it will be no wonder that our worship will start to feel bland and cheap because we've given it very little value. Our worship of God is not like a microwave. It is much more like a fire that needs to be poked and stoked beforehand. There's a call in our worship to prepare. We even sing about it sometimes in Christmas hymns, you know, in the words, joy to the world. We want every heart to prepare him room. Now, what does that look like? There's no clear command in the Bible. There's lots of ways we might prepare for worship. Maybe uh, we wear nice clothes. You know, people sometimes talk about church clothes or Sunday best. There's no command in the Bible that you have to wear anything special or anything different to come to worship, so let's not pass judgment on each other about that. Maybe that's a way you prepare. Maybe you think about it that way. Maybe not. That's fine. But there's lots of ways that our preparation might occur in ways that are more important than clothes. Here are a few. Before worship, you need to get enough sleep. Sometimes you can't control that, but some of it you might be able to. Go to bed at a decent hour so that you're rested for worship. In the mornings, as far as we're able, we need to allow ourselves time to pause so that we're not in a rush. 
so that we're planning ahead to arrive on time, and not just on time, but, but ready. Maybe, maybe on a Sunday morning you reflect on the scriptures that, that, that we soaked in last week. Maybe you have notes, or you pull those out, or you just open your Bible and read the text as a reminder to your own mind, or, or maybe you look ahead to the verses that we'll look at, if you know them, this coming week. Maybe in preparation for worship, you set aside your tithe so that you're not just pulling out of your wallet whatever happens to be there that Sunday morning. Or maybe as part of a preparation, if you know you're in conflict with somebody else in the church, you deal with that. You go to them and, and try to reconcile or maybe repent, say your own sins, so that you can work through that before we gather for worship at least, at least, we all need to be preparing for worship by way of prayer. That we asked God to warm our hearts for worship. It's not that we have to clean ourselves up or, or, or do better in order to earn our spot in the throne room of God, that Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has already secured our spot here. We just want it to show that God is worthy of our intentional preparation, that he is worth the time and effort we might put into this. So our worship begins before our worship begins. Now, all that said, it is important for us to note that what this new baby John will eventually do when he's grown as a prophet, what he will do is a little bit different than what we hear in Joy to the World when we have every heart prepare him room. In Joy to the World, the call is for us to prepare ourselves that we need to take time, effort into preparing our own hearts. And in a sense, that's true. But what John is doing is different. John will go before the Lord to prepare his way. It's not that we're preparing for him. It's that he's preparing us. He's making us ready. John's preparation is not something done by us. It's something done to us. So then in the rest of our time, I want us to look at three questions about John's preparation of us as a people. The questions are how, why, and to what end? About preparation, how, why, and to what end? Let's look at the first of those. How are we to be prepared? Let me read again in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. To give knowledge of salvation. John prepares us by giving us a sort of knowledge about salvation and forgiveness. John's not actually giving the salvation, only Jesus can do that, but he's giving knowledge of salvation by pointing us to Jesus. 
And, Je- and John points us to Jesus by preaching. So the answer to our question of how does he prepare us, he prepares us through proclamation. He prepares us through proclamation. So listen to me now. Preaching matters. Preaching matters. I know that seems a little self-serving for me to say. But this is not just something I say for my own job security. I say this because it's true, and you and I all, we all need to hear it. You know, I hear some people say, maybe not here, but in a broader sense, some people say, hey, you know, preaching, it doesn't fit my learning style. You know, I'd rather things be a little more interactive. Maybe he could include some video clips in there to keep my attention. You know, the, the sermons are long. I can't really pay, pay attention. I get uncomfortable, and, and, and they're boring. Sometimes they're boring, and so I just check out and fall asleep. Listen, if that is your approach to preaching, you need to grow up. I know that I am not the best preacher and that listening to preaching is not always easy for everybody all the time. That's true of me too. But you are not babies. You do not need to be spoon-fed, mushed peas. If you want the preaching of the word of God to really feed you and prepare you, you need to take some responsibility in the hearing of it. Paul tells us in the book uh, to the Romans, he said, "How, how can people call on God unless they've believed? How can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? Without preaching, We diminish our belief and even our desire to call on God. John the Baptist is not there to hook anybody in. When he grows up, he's not going to be one that does miracles or wonders or healings. He's not going to do things that wow you and impress you and captivate you. He just proclaims Jesus as the Savior of his people. That's it. John prepares us by talking. And if we actually put the effort in to listen the Holy Spirit will take those words and prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts. That's our first question. How he prepares us is by proclamation. Now the second, why? Why do we need to be prepared? The answer to this one is because Verse 79, we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. There is an aspect of our place in a fallen world that that things are sad 
often and lonely and weary. I'm sure it's no surprise to you that we encounter lots of darkness. But what this is talking about goes beyond just the hard things that might happen to us. We're told that he's speaking to those who sit in darkness, not just encounter it, sit in it. That is, those who have accepted the darkness, even invited and embraced the darkness. That's what Jesus is talking about later. He says, hey, the light came into the world, but people loved darkness rather than light because their own hearts, their own works were evil. So the reason why we need to be prepared is because we have loved darkness. We need to be prepared because of our sin. That means when, when John comes of age, his time comes and he brings a proclamation, the word he brings to the people is not, hey, life is hard, I get it, but Jesus is going to make it better. That may be true, but that's not what he says to them. The message he proclaims is this. It's later in Luke in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Don't begin to say to yourselves, Oh, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's the prophet's proclamation. Now that is not very nice. That is not the way to win people over. John needs to take a class somewhere about public relations. But John didn't come to win people. John came to prepare people. And in order to prepare people, he needs to name their sin and the wrath that is to come upon sin. There is no good news unless we can first face the bad news. You know the Dickens story, Ebenezer Scrooge? We haven't watched one yet this year, but we probably will. We'll get to it. It's one of the movies that, you know, it's at the tail end of the list. Ebenezer Scrooge, you know the, the account, bad, bad old grumpy guy. Uh, and, and in the end, the end is happy, right? Tiny Tim's great. We're all having turkey, and there's smiles all around. Good, happy ending. We want that. But in order to get to, the, to, the, to Scrooge's happy ending, he has to go through a very long process of preparation with all the three ghosts. And in that preparation, Scrooge is faced with his own sin. 
so that he sees the gravity of his greed, his selfishness, his callousness, and just his general lack of love. And it's not just that, that he, he needs to see his sin, he needs to be in some way struck by it so that he comes to, to grieve it, to see it as really evil and to want to change, to repent from it. That has to happen first. We need to see that we are sinners. Jesus is the Savior of sinners, not the Savior of the righteous. So if you're not a sinner in your own mind, Jesus didn't come for you. If you don't see yourself as one sitting in darkness, then you're not going to need any light. But if you have been prepared, that is, been brought by God to see and own your own sin and to want to cry out to God for help, ah, then you can see the tender mercy of our God in the face of Jesus. That's the second. Why we need to be prepared is because of our own sin. Third and finally, to what end are we prepared? To what end are we prepared? That is, what are we prepared for? What's the, what's the goal? What's the end game here? Now we get to the good news that those who sit in darkness are prepared for light. John is bringing the knowledge of salvation of sin so that we see Jesus who actually is the salvation of sin. Jesus comes so that there would be no wrath of God against sin. He would receive all that wrath, and instead he would bring us peace with God and the forgiveness of, the, of sin. And all of that good news is bundled together here with the image of a dawning sunrise. Let me read the end here, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people, oh, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The sunrise will visit us on high. The old translations say instead of sunrise, they call him the day spring, which is a poetic way to say that I think gets, gets the thrust. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. Right? That's true. Jesus is the light of the world. But here he's talked about his more specific kind of light. Jesus is the first light. Jesus is the dawn's early light. He's the sunrise, the day spring. In other words, Jesus is the beginning of light that will continue to grow in him. So woven into all of this is a sense of, of expectation, anticipation of increase. That, that the light of the day spring is going to guide our feet not just to peace, but into peace. That we would go further and further into peace. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what John's preparing us for.
You know, people asked about John. The whole buzz is, what will this child be? And the best way that I can think about it, it reminds me of a time when we were uh, recently on vacation. And every morning, when it was still dark, people would start to gather at the beach. They would almost even line up along the water's edge. And, and they would just sit there and watch and wait for the sun to start to peep over the ocean's edge. And I thought, why, does it, why is everyone gathering to do this? And then when the first time I saw it, I go, oh, that's why, because this sunrise is worth it. It was unreal. Pink, blue, glittering, all the things. So John has come now to prepare us for that sort of expectation. John is sort of taking us by the hand up to the water's edge, sitting us down and, and pointing us toward the east, and he says to us, watch. Look for the sunrise of Jesus because the day spring is about to come to us from on high. Pray with me. Lord, we long to see your tender mercy revealed in this way. This salvation that you've spoken to us from of old. We know that Jesus has come into our world once. We long for the day in which you will come again. Lord, would you prepare us, prepare our minds, our hearts, our whole selves to look for the light in Jesus? And would you guide our feet into the way of peace? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.